Hello and welcome to the 19th episode of the CCGI podcast. Last week we interviewed Nardine Beckett and discussed her experiences as a chiropractic student. This week we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Dean Smith. Let's introduce today's guest. Yeah, Dr. Smith is a senior clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University and that's in Ohio, not Florida. Uh, he also maintains private practice in, in Eaton, Ohio at Essence of Wellness Chiropractic Center. Dean's a founder and host of Chiropractic Science, a podcast dedicated to publicizing chiropractic research through podcast interviews with leading chiropractic scientists and one of our main sources of competition. Um, in his private practice, Dean incorporates lifestyle interventions like exercise, nutrition, and other non-drug methods with chiropractic care to encourage wellness and has been in practice since 1997. Dean's education includes a bachelor's degree in human biology, a master's degree in exercise science, a doctor of chiropractic degree, and a, and a PhD in brain and cognitive science with a focus on motor behavior and postural control. His research interests lie broadly in the area of human movement and coordination. And re- these days, he's most interested in how chiropractic, exercise, and rehabilitation affect human performance. Most recently, he was awarded the t- 2018 George B. McClelland Researcher of the Year Award by the American Chiropractic Association. Dean, congratulations on that, and thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks very much, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you fellas today. Wonderful. I mean, uh, let, let's get right into it, and, and obviously we want to talk about your podcast, Chiropractic Science, which we've all listened to on, here on the show. Can you tell us why you started this this podcast and maybe how, how it began? Yeah, sure. I'll first give you a little background. Uh, several years ago, I I really wanted to interview one of my mentors, uh, who was Dr. Greg Kramer. Uh, and I had gone to school at National College, and so he was the dean of research there. And I was curious to learn more about his studies specifically regarding small animal models of spine dysfunction. And I was interested in learning about his side posture Z-joint gapping studies as well. I had read the studies, but I had some burning questions about them. Questions that you just sometimes don't get answered by reading the papers. So uh, I asked him if he'd uh, do an interview with me. And uh, fortunately enough, he said yes. He was actually in the area down here in Ohio. He's got family here. And so he came over to the university and I recorded our conversation and everything went great. I was real pleased with it. And I thought at the time, maybe I can just make an archive of uh, Dr. Kramer's talk and listen to it every once in a while for my own sake. Uh, Because every time I listen to a talk, it seems like I get something new out of it. And So I began to think about all of the other researchers and research that I wanted to learn about. And I thought, well, maybe I can do something with Dr. Kramer's talk and perhaps other people might be interested to learn what he had to say. Uh, I was kind of thinking it was selfish (laughs) a little bit to uh, keep it to myself. So uh, about that time uh, that I decided I wanted to do something with it, Uh, Dr. Katie Pullman was uh, in the area. She's about an hour north of uh, where I'm at here in Ohio, and and I knew she was at home for a little while, so I said, hey, Katie, why don't you come down and uh, we'll record a podcast? 
And she said, great. And so she came down, we did that. And then uh, I was traveling back home to, uh, to Ontario. And uh, I thought, who do I know up there that I could contact? And I was thinking maybe somebody from CMCC. And, and then I thought, Bernadette Murphy. She uh, basically works in the town that I grew up and where my parents are at. And so I thought, hey, I'll just interview her and so fortunately everybody has agreed uh, so far to be on the podcast and so that's how it started uh, and at that point I kind of figured out stumbled my way around figuring out how to put things on iTunes and and whatnot but uh, even though I do the podcast mostly over the internet the reasons I started the podcast are, are still the same and uh, I the idea the basic gist of the podcast is to be able to listen to chiropractic researchers tell in their own words why they wanted to become a chiropractor uh, their motivation to do their studies the results they've attained and some of the key takeaway points so it seemed like a good idea and still seems like a good idea today and selfishly, I guess, one of the reasons I do the podcast is I just want to know as much as possible about the chiropractic research that's out there. I have burning questions uh, that I like to ask my guests uh, that I just want to know about. And fortunately, it seems like other people uh, are getting some benefit out of my questions. <laughs> uh, but I, I figure, you know, it can't get better than coming from the horse's mouth, so to speak. No, yeah. absolutely, and and being able to hear some of those those personal stories coming from the researchers too, and you know why they're why they're a chiropractor and why why they got into research and and their particular areas. That's it, you know it's it's great to fill in those gaps, like you said. Absolutely, it, you know it's just a lot of fun. Uh, as we were talking before we started recording, I'm a chiropractic junkie. I I can't get enough. So. Uh, I'm just, uh, you know, read as much as I can. I love seeing patients. I love my re research at the university. And so it's just all good. Nice. Now, having said that, you're a researcher yourself. And in, in 2016, you, you published a paper uh, titled The Effective Chiropractic Treatment on the Reaction and Response Times of Special Operation Forces Military Personnel. And it was a study protocol for a randomized control trial. How are you doing on this study? Are, are you working on the RCT now? Yeah, actually, the, the study is complete. Um, the, the study was first proposed, geez, I think it was back in 2010. There was a call for papers uh, put out by the Department of Defense. And I had seen this uh, come through. And actually, my mentor, who we just talked about, Dr. Greg Kramer, had uh, also seen this paper. and. I didn't know the, the Palmer group, including Dr. Gertz, very well at the time. And so he put me in contact with them, told them about my research interests. And I had done uh, a similar study using Fitz Law, uh, which is essentially a way to test uh, speed and accuracy demands uh, during a task. And uh, with that in mind, uh, that, that got me into... Uh, helping out with uh, this particular study. And uh, I'll tell you about the study. Uh, it, it, like I said, it's complete. Um, we presented the, 
the paper at ACC RAC in Washington, D.C. in 2017. I can tell you a bit about the study. It's currently uh, in review at the journal trials right now, so hopefully uh, cross our fingers all will go well. Um, But uh, the idea from the DOD was that they wanted the study to be able to see if chiropractic could improve uh, reaction time and reflex times uh, after care. And so we came up with uh, a study that essentially looked at the effect of chiropractic on reaction times. And we looked at simple reaction times as well as choice reaction times. We incorporated the Fitz law idea that I mentioned a minute ago. And we also had uh, another test that we used, which was, I don't know if you've seen these um, boards at uh, maybe gyms is where you might see them, but uh, where a panel of lights exist and you hit one button on this panel of lights and uh, the light goes off and then another button lights up and so on and so forth. So the idea is to hit the buttons as fast as you can that light up. And so that was another task that we had people do in the experiment. Uh, People uh, were divided into two groups. Uh, One group received four uh, manipulations over a two-week time period, and the other group was a wait list control. They did these uh, series of tests, the simple and choice reaction times and that lighted button task uh, before they uh, received any care or, or the control being in the wait list group. Uh, and then we reassessed them uh, on the last visit. And so the results essentially were uh, that the reaction times, uh, both simple and choice, didn't really show any change with care. But the task where it was a little bit longer of a task, it took about 60 seconds to complete that lighted button task. And uh, so we did see immediate changes on that task. In other words, they, they improved on the task both times we measured. Um, after adjustments, so uh, if I didn't say we actually measured twice uh, after they started care, once uh, in the middle of care essentially and then once right at the end. And so both times we measured, they achieved uh, significantly uh, shorter uh, response times. And so those were the results uh, of that particular study. Uh, I see some areas that we can Uh, certainly uh, continue to work on. And uh, the interpretation of that is interesting. You know, why didn't we see simple reaction times or choice reaction times change? Uh, I think the idea here is that these individuals are extremely fit. Uh, Some of the most fit individuals I've ever met personally. Uh, You can consider them like athletes, uh, high-level athletes. And so I'm not sure it's, uh, you know, retrospect, I'm not even sure it's reasonable to consider that their reaction times, especially their simple reaction time, would change much. Um, It's possible we didn't have uh, as difficult of a task as we needed to, to try to get the uh, improvements on the choice reaction time. So there are multiple variables here, but we did see this immediate change uh, with the button task. Uh, we did not see a, a longer term change, however, from uh, the first week uh, through the, the second week.
Well, now I want to see the read the full paper. <laughs> yeah, it it's pre- it's pretty interesting. Uh, I think uh, if we're going to do more with the uh, military personnel, I think we really need to think about what kind of tasks. Uh, now that we've seen, you know, the results from this study, what kind of tasks can really challenge them, but not make it so difficult that it gets boring that they don't want to do the task. And so that's where we were caught before is, you know, how, how much can we do with them and not have them be too bored that they'll still want to complete the task. It's, it's pretty interesting thinking about all the variables and it took about five years to get everything done as it is. Wow. And, and would you think that you'd see um, greater changes in the general population? Yes, I do. I think the, uh, if you think about their systems, uh, the, the, these military personnel, I would think of their systems in general as high functioning, about as high functioning system as you can get from a musculoskeletal and nervous system perspective. And so I think the, my expectation would definitely be that the general public uh, would experience uh, greater benefits, but that's not to say that the military personnel couldn't experience benefits. We did see the immediate change, at least on the one, you know, more complicated, longer task. Um, so I, I don't know what we would do next. I'm still trying to contemplate that, but definitely for the general population, uh, I have some pilot work I alluded to earlier with Fitz Law that showed uh, our general population of patients uh, did improve on that task uh, even immediately. So. Uh, I do think that uh, we need to continue these kinds of studies. This is why I got into research, was looking at human performance. I, I like all the studies with pain, but my, my reason for getting into things was that I think chiropractic has an effect on human behavior. And I think it's right now in our research, I think it's about finding which variables uh, people are tuning into after they get adjusted and and how they move differently and and the complexity how the complexity changes and if we have time I'll be glad to tell you about some of our current research well that's a topic that really needs to be explored further <laughs> uh, huge opportunities in that in that realm um, you know the, the next question I have for you is is that I've noticed you've submitted quite a few letters to the editor on topics ranging from spinal manipulation and low back pain to risks associated with chiropractic treatment. And these letters have been published in a variety of journals, such as the Canadian Family Physician, Brain Injury, and the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, to name a few. Uh, and I want to know what compels you to write letters to the editor? Well, usually what gets me writing these is that I have thought the author either made uh, an error, a significant error in fact, or in interpretation in the writing. And usually it's something that gets me a little angry, to be honest. Uh, I read the paper and I think, that's not right. Uh, you know, I'm human too. And uh, so I read these things and and it just, you know, it gets you excitable. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so when I get to that level, then, you know, I try to calm down a little bit and, and I look for any factual errors. Uh, I look for opinions instead of evidence. Uh, 
poor evidence or maybe even disregard, blatant disregard of the evidence. And that's usually when I start, you know, considering to write a letter and start uh, outlining a draft of uh, the letter. Um, the other thing I do or that I do to try to understand these uh, uh errors is that I, I, I realize people do make errors for sure. We all make errors. Uh, but when it seems like it's a, an obvious disregard, that's usually when the, the pen comes to paper, so to speak. Uh, you know, small errors or things of that nature don't usually get me too excited or choice of words sometimes don't get me too excited. But if it's consistent throughout and I feel like I can contribute uh, to the discussion, then that's usually, uh, you know, when I uh, get on board and start writing. Well, they're, they're certainly fun fun to read. I, I, from 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 a clinician perspective, it's it's nice to to see um, um, articles that are perhaps a bit misleading being corrected, even even you know after they've been published. Um, it, it's it's encouraging to see that that it take place. Yeah, and this is where I think clinicians in practice can uh, take the initiative and write some of these themselves, uh, maybe contact a, a researcher in the profession as well to help them write uh, their first one or two letters to the editor, perhaps. But I think we can all get on board with uh, something like a letter to the editor. Uh, it's uh, not something that usually at least in my opinion, gets as much uh, peer review. Uh, most of the letters to the editor, if they're reasonable, seem to be published. Uh, the other thing I think is important about a letter to the editor is that it is an opportunity to try to set the record straight, or if not setting the record straight, at least maybe an addendum, so that if somebody looks up a paper, let's say an important paper, uh, they typically, let's say in a PubMed search, will also see, hey, there's a letter to the editor written about this as well, you know, and then they can at least get differences of opinion seen that way. That's great. In addition to it being a useful, um, useful practice for clinicians and critical appraisal and, and getting their feet wet and, and, and writing something like that up. It's it's one thing that I find in, interesting in editing the JCCA is I actually very rarely get any kind of letters to the editor, and I don't think it's because the work that we publish isn't sometimes, you know, controversial or has you know something that's that has points that need to be addressed. I think there's just uh, I think a little bit of shyness on behalf of our readers to actually you know put pen to paper. So I, I like your suggestion of you know getting in contact with the researcher if you see something that's that you question or that you maybe don't like and seeing if there's there's a way to respond. Absolutely, I think there's lots of ways to go about it, but that might be that just might make the individual clinician a little bit more uh, confident and comfortable, at least in their first writing. And I think once they have that under their belt then uh, doing further ones will be a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. So since Galen and I are involved with the, uh, the Clinical Cl Practice Guideline Initiative up here in Canada, we should probably ask you something about guidelines. Um, can you tell us about how you use CPGs in practice? How do they help inform the, your clinical decision making? Yeah, for sure. Well, just to give you an idea, uh, I don't practice full time. 
I practice uh, part-time, so I just uh, saw some patients this morning before our talk here. Uh, but um, in my practice, I, I think I use practice guidelines uh, on a daily basis. At least the, I try to remain true to the essence of the guidelines. And I'll tell you uh, maybe a few ways in which I uh, try to incorporate them. First of all, uh, my mindset for most patients that come in, I usually do what most guidelines recommend, which is a uh, clinical trial of care. And so that would be, let's say, for you know a typical back pain case, maybe six to uh, seven visits or something uh, along that line, and then do a reassessment and figure out uh, what I might need to, to do. At that point, I usually try to do multimodal care consistent with uh, most guidelines incorporate exercise and physical activity, lifestyle change uh, where where needed. Uh, I do a lot of things with ergonomics. Uh, part of my PhD training was uh, in that field. So I do a lot of uh, getting to uh, people at, at work and uh, just the way they move their bodies throughout the day. I find it's a big uh, a boost to my practice and getting people uh, well quickly. Um, but that's the way I look at them uh, and try to incorporate them initially. Now, uh, in practice, I, for example, with the CCGI guidelines, uh, I have videos that uh, were produced by CCGI. They're on my website. So I try to incorporate uh, as much of the guidelines uh, where possible. If I notice that a person is not getting better after, let's say, my clinical trial of care, then I would resort to looking at the guidelines to see, hmm, maybe what should I do next? Should I refer them on to somebody else? Should I try integrated care with another practitioner? Or should I just try something completely different? Um, so I use them as... Uh, uh, tools, not rules, as we've all heard, and I think that is a very appropriate way to use them. They're not burning in the back of my mind. You know, I, I don't have the clinical practice guidelines uh, printed out and on my desk uh, to use with every single encounter, but I have them in the back of my mind. And when something in particular is not going the way I want to, then I certainly consult them, or I might get on PubMed, but usually. The easiest way is just to consult the clinical practice guidelines. Now, uh, some other ways that I use these things in practice, um, I have produced some uh, slides, patient education slides, and so I use these in my practice, and a lot of them have to do with the information that's in clinical practice guidelines. Um, I table talk with my patients and say, hey, Mrs. Jones, did you know that this, that, or the other, you know, this is reasonable for this condition. We should be doing some exercise or, you know, something like that. So I try to incorporate it uh, in as many places as I can. Um, but, you know, that's the art of practice. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's more to one, more than one way to, to address these and, and just having additional resources and having those tools in, in place for when you need them is, is, is valuable, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So we'd, uh, you'd mentioned it briefly that we could maybe expand a bit on, on some of the research that you're doing at Miami University. What, what, what else can you tell us about your research program? Yeah, so I'm in the kinesiology and health department at Miami, and so I get invited, uh, fortunately, to participate in in other faculty uh, research. And so I've done some with uh, exercise and looking at the effect of an acute bout of exercise on movement times. Um, and so we uh, are just getting ready to submit a, a uh, trial on on that and what we found basically uh, was that 30 minutes of moderate uh, uh, aerobic exercise uh, produced a uh, improvement in movement uh, and the movement time in particular given the same level of accuracy on a task and uh, looking at the literature for exercise uh, you know, there's something going on in the nervous system, likely in the brain, the prefrontal cortex, that is driving these uh, kinds of adaptations. And uh, what it tells me is that, give, given uh, all things else being equal, we should probably have people do as much physical activity as possible, and that uh, physical activity can be somewhat of a priming agent, perhaps for the brain to get the brain essentially kick-started into uh, better functioning. So that's one study uh, that we have worked on that we just finished up. Another study uh, that we presented just a couple of months ago in Dallas is one that I'm really excited about. Uh, and this is the impact of extremity adjustments on postural sway. And what we did was we had students at uh, Parker College participate in, in the study. Uh, we, the goal of the study basically, or the impetus for the study was to try to look at, uh, does postural control differ uh, pre and post adjustments uh, to the extremities? Uh, and the study was actually proposed by Chris Malaya, who is a student at Parker, who now is actually going to be going on to get his PhD at the University of Houston. I hope I can say that. <laughs> um, and um, so we're really excited about uh, his opportunities and to contribute to the profession. It's kind of seeing chiropractic science and, and podcasts such as yours uh, really help foster the idea of getting into the science more. But back to the study. Um, so it was Chris's idea to try to figure out whether upper extremity or lower extremity adjustments impacted postural control differently uh, than the other. So uh, we figured out or we decided uh, for this study that we'd have people do a novel task. We'd have them on a rocker board. And the idea was that standing posture, most of the studies don't really show that chiropractic care or any significant intervention really changes the biomechanics of sway that much. And so we wanted to make the task harder, so we had them stand on a rocker board. And uh, I asked a friend of mine, uh, Josh Hayworth, who uh, did his master's degree at Miami and then went on to um, do a postdoc uh, after his PhD, uh, Johns Hopkins. He 
learned about a technique, uh, various techniques uh, to look at dynamic systems. And so we had him apply some of these nonlinear dynamic systems techniques to the rocker board and to the postural analysis. And basically, the long and short of it is that uh, when we adjusted the lower extremity and people stood on the rocker board before and after, afterwards, uh, their control mechanisms were uh, a lot more in control. The sway was more regulated. But it, when we adjusted the upper extremity, it seemed like the sway became more chaotic and, uh, and disorderly, I guess you could say. So that's leading us down uh, a new path. We're looking at incorporating uh, similar studies in the elderly. We're really excited to do some research in that population to try to get at postural control mechanisms and, and how chiropractic care might uh, affect that group. Well, it's really interesting when you when you start applying these concepts to different subpopulations and and trying to understand what impact or effect those those uh, those have. Absolutely, yeah. And so, with with falls being a major public health issue, uh, you know, the incidence of falls is uh, escalating and has escalated about thirty percent over the last decade. Uh, there's something that's going on. Of course, people are aging. Uh, you know, there, we have more aged people in society, I guess I should say. Um, and so that's certainly a factor to it. But I, I think uh, if one looks at the drop in physical activity levels, the rise in obesity, greater inflammation, uh, you know, there's lots of factors that may be going into it. And, and from my standpoint, I'm just trying to see how chiropractic care fits into this. You know, what can we add to the, to the model to, uh, to be able to help people out? That's fantastic. Um, so I, I, we should wrap things up here. Um, but I'd thank, Dean, I'd really like to thank you for your time and, and joining us today. It's been a really... Uh, it's been a pleasure, and it's been great to to finally get you on the show with us. Um, we we'd love to encourage our listeners to, if they haven't done so already, to check out the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Um, it's fantastic content, amazing speakers, and, and offers a really unique perspective to to chiropractic research. Great, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Dean, and and I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in, and we'll look forward to bringing you our next guest in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.